Hello and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Cover the world of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a great show for you this week. Film critic Stephen Garrett is here to talk about 3,000 Years of Longing, the new film from director George Miller. Ty Pearson will be here to talk about House of the Dragon, the prequel series to Game of Thrones that is now airing on HBO Max or other HBO-related products, whatever they're calling HBO these days. But first, Chris Farnsworth is here, Book and Film Globe book critic and a novelist himself, to talk with me about Heat 2, the prequel novel to Heat, the Michael Mann movie. And we're going to talk to Meg Gardner, who is the co-writer of Heat 2 with Michael Mann. She is a thriller and a crime novelist in her own right, a very accomplished one, and she has agreed to spend some time with us today talking about Heat 2. We'll be right back after this Heat-related musical interlude. A change of style A change of common theme on this show is that no culture ever dies. Everything is up for revival and up for sequels, no matter what genre it's in or no matter how impossible you might think it is, things can come back. And uh, another pop culture miracle has occurred in the last month or so with the arrival of the novel Heat 2, the sequel to the popular cult uh, sort of 90s noir movie from Michael Mann and uh, Chris Farnsworth, our frequent contributor, reviewed Heat 2 for us this week. But we have a special guest on the show today, Meg Gardner, a, a crime and thriller writer who lives in Austin, who, who I know. I've actually played uh, trivia with Meg. Meg, in addition, like me, is a three-time Jeopardy champion. And like me, she is also a genre novelist. And she collaborated with Michael Mann on the novel Heat 2, which is going to be turned into a film, but now it's a novel and it is a New York Times mega best-selling novel. And Chris is here with me today. Hello, Chris. Hey, Neil. Hey, Meg. And Meg is here as well to talk to me about, to talk to us about the book and the process of writing it. Meg, thank you so much for joining us on this great podcast. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you had a Twitter thread up yesterday, as we're talking yesterday, about the process uh, of writing Heat 2 with Michael Mann. First of all, I'm curious, like how, I mean, I know that you're a successful uh, crime novelist and a thriller writer, but how did you end up getting this gig over the many writers who I imagine would be clamoring for the opportunity to write Heat 2 with Michael Mann? We'll start with uh, Michael Mann uh, wanting for many years to continue the story that is told in Heat. And uh, the movie <laughs> tells a very uh, narrow splinter of time in, uh, in, the, in the characters' lives. It's a very intense and uh, confrontational splinter of time uh, about the Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro, who is the uh, head of a Highline bank robbery crew, and Vincent Hanna, played by Al Pacino, who is the uh, relentless homicide detective who hunts 
this crew. And Michael knew who these people had been before the movie. He knew where the, shall we say, survivors might, uh, might try to go after the film. And he had, for a very long time, wanted to, uh, to expand the, the world of the story. He and I have the same literary agent. And after Michael read my novel, Unsub, he asked to talk to me about collaborating on turning the story into a novel. I'm sure you know that he is an exceptionally accomplished writer and that his work until now had been in film and television. So he was interested in collaborating with someone who had experience uh, writing fiction uh, simply for the page uh, in the form of uh, books that might run to 100,000 words, 400 pages or so. And uh, we talked extensively about his concept of the story and uh, how I could help him realize his ambitions and how he could uh, set me loose to, uh, to explore the story. And that's what we did. <laughs> Eventually we, we were, we were, we became so enmeshed that we were sending chapters and scenes and pages and paragraphs back and forth uh, every day. So it was uh, a real intense and challenging and wonderful collaboration. Yeah, I mean, there's a, obviously a real difference between writing for the screen uh, or for TV and writing writing books. I mean, I'm, screen and TV writers are so good at um, character arcs and, you know, sort of plot points. Uh, but, you know, a fiction writer can kind of fill in the, uh, the, the gaps, the, the expository stuff, the, the scene, you know, the scene descriptions, the, the setting and, uh, and, and so on. So... But you had to do. You actually, in addition to collaborating with uh, with Michael Mann, sort of back and forth, uh, you also did some fairly intensive research. You, you were writing about this on Twitter in order in order to in order to get into the world of heat. Yeah, I wrote about it on Twitter because I, I think readers are fascinated by the by what goes into uh, into creating a, a novel or a or a film, and. Michael Mann is legendary for the uh, depth of the research he performs before he uh, embarks on any project. He really wants to dive into a a culture, uh, you know, uh, a world uh, that he's going to be uh, immersed in for the for the story. He wants to know who the people are, how they think, how they live, uh, what their what their lives are like. So, uh, you know, that's the legend, and the legend is accurate. So when we wanted to uh, tell a story about uh, Highline uh, burglary slash robbery crew uh, doing a tunnel job in Chicago in the 80s, we talked to a retired bank robber about how he would have performed a tunnel job in Chicago in the 80s. And when we needed to know about... uh, what the what the world of uh, South uh, South Los Angeles is like on the on the streets after most businesses closed? Uh, we rode out with a couple of LAPD sergeants and uh, and uh, and drove around for a few hours, uh, seeing what was going on. So it's now, always my it's, question, it's, it's pretty intense and fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my question is though, right? Like, if I let's say I wanted to write about that, like I wouldn't be able to get that access. Do you think having Michael Mann? on uh on the team helped i mean i mean I, no there's no lapd cop who hasn't seen heat 
<laughs> right. And there, Michael has been uh, doing movies about about Los Angeles and crime stories set in Los Angeles and uh, heist movies set in Chicago, where he was born and raised for decades. So he was, uh, you know, he knows plenty of people, uh, either as friends from the Chicago Police Department or as uh, as officers who are would be very interested in uh, in helping him uh, with the authenticity of scenes set in Los Angeles. And uh, he also uh, knows, perhaps through these people, how to get in touch with uh, someone who has done his time and uh, is happy to uh, explain exactly what, what put him behind bars in the first place. So we definitely had an, had a, an edge with Michael's reputation, which is, is well earned and deserved. So uh, I was very happy and uh, uh, surprised to be able to take advantage of that. I've done a lot of research for all my novels, but, but nothing like this. Yeah, that's very cool. So, all right. So we're going to, we're going to switch gears. I'm going to let Chris take over here because you guys can talk about the book itself, which again, I'm going to read. I mean, I, I, I no, I really am. Like, <laughs> Thanks, Neil. I'll be quizzing you on it later. If I'm going to read, if I'm going to read any book this year, it's going to be, different. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I, I actually mean that. Um, but, uh, I haven't yet. So Chris, why don't you, uh, take over and you guys can talk about uh the sequel and, and how it how it functions absolutely yeah i mean it's a little intimidating you're both jeopardy champions i didn't even get past the audition um it was uh so this is yeah this is this is the big grind man <laughs> <laughs> um meg it is a fantastic book and you should be i mean obviously you should be so proud um but uh, I, I loved it i mean it, it had there are all kinds of pitfalls you can get into with a sequel. And I was really impressed at how deftly you and Michael Mann avoided them. Um, one of the questions though I had was, I mean, these are not good people. Neil and Chris are not nice guys. And there's a real, I'm wondering how do you get us then, to, how did you get us to root for them throughout this entire this in, this long and you know incredibly involved book where you see them do really awful things to a lot of people how do you get the, us to be on their side so effectively it's uh, a matter of showing their their full humanity of of making every character in a story compelling fascinating uh, showing their their loves their fears their, their longings, how they ended up perhaps in desperate situations that left them with uh, what seemed like no other option but to take up a life of crime, perhaps. The, Michael uh, did the same thing in Heat, where the, the cop and the robber are really twin protagonists. They are, there's, not a, there's not a hero and a villain uh, between them. They are both uh, driving the story. And when we're in uh, Hannah's point of view, we want him to catch, to, to track down and capture this, this crew. When we are in Neil's uh, point of view, we want him to get away with these daring mm -hmm. high stakes scores uh, to go into the bank and remind everybody, even as they're terrified and cowering on the floor, that, uh, that 
he's not after their money. It's the it's the bank's money. Their money is safe. It's insured by the federal government. And if they just hold still, nobody will get hurt. That may not if I don't hold still, he won't uh, he won't hurt him. But right. that's uh, that's the that's the point of view he has. And in a in a any kind of a a, a story like this, if if you have people uh, that you get get the readers to care about, then you're going to want to see how how their the lives unfold, and you're going to want to to perhaps see them see them succeed. Chris Chaherlis is uh, he's a bank robber. You know, he was in a gun battle on the streets of L.A. with uh, with cops, and he was he was mowing him down. Mm-hmm. But now he's uh, the the book starts with him near dead from a gunshot wound, uh, desperate to escape the city, knowing that if he makes it out alive, uh, the only way he can do that is to leave his beloved wife and uh, little boy behind because he would endanger them if he tried to take them along. So he has to give up uh, the things that he loves the most in the world uh, and without knowing if he'll ever be able to come back uh, or even uh, be, keep breathing long enough to, to tell them goodbye. So that's how you create uh, empathy for, for someone who is clearly a very ambitious and lethal <laughs> criminal. The other way is to, uh, as in the, the as in the film and in the novel, have a have a real villain on mm-hmm. on the on the stage or the page who is clearly uh, has no has little or no redeeming qualities and does not care who he is going to hurt and uh, how and is not going to stop unless someone stops him. And in the novel, that is the Otis Wardell, who is the leader of a gang of violent home invaders in Chicago, uh, who gets tangled up with Hannah, who is trying to uh, chase him down and later on crosses paths with uh, Neil and his crew. And that's all I can say because I don't want to and yeah, no spoilers, no spoilers. Yeah, I don't want to give. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it for for Neil or anybody else. But yeah, Otis Wardell is uh, a, a a complete sewer of a human being, and I thought it was really uh, impressive how few redeeming qualities you managed to. Thank give you, it thank you. Really, yeah. That warms my heart. Yeah. Um, I w- yeah, I want to jump back to Chris for a second, though. Um, he takes off, and uh, not too much of a spoiler, but I do want to say that he gets to. And I know I'm going to screw up the pronunciation, but Suidad uh, del Este in Paraguay, which is essentially like Disneyland for criminals. How did you how did you find out about this place? I think it's, and, it's, I think it's Ciudad, right? Ciudad. Ciudad. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Ciudad del Este. Uh, how'd you, Michael so how did you find out about this had, place? Michael had been there. Oh, excellent. He filmed, <laughs> he filmed uh, a number of scenes in uh, Miami Vice there. So I uh, found out this uh, city on the triple border between Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina is a tourist haven for shoppers. It's Black Friday, 365 days a year. It's a free trade zone, and everything goes. Everything is above board, is out in the open, whether that means money laundering, uh, counterfeiting, uh, you know, uh, whatever, stolen goods, uh, it's uh, it is it's Disneyland for criminals. It has a, a very high murder rate, but the streets are absolutely safe for ordinary tourists and citizens. So he was just 
fascinated by the 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 atmosphere, the idea of the of the city, and the opportunities it would prevent present to uh, someone who arrives uh, nearly dead, but uh, knows that he's going to be exiled here, and if he's going to do anything with his life, he has to reinvent himself, and that's what Chris tries to do when uh, when he is uh, exfiltrated from Los Angeles uh, to South America, and. It was fascinating. You asked how I learned about it. It was like, tell me about this, Michael. And so he puts me in touch with someone who has lived in Paraguay or, you know, was a, was a consultant for various governments. And he sends me, you know, books and he says, I say, well, what, what, what does the city look like? So he sends me 2000 photos of wow. uh, him with his, uh, his location <laughs> scouts uh, on the streets there, uh, figuring out where they can, where they can film and, uh, that's how I get a sense of it. That's that's very cool. Um, yeah, it kind of comes back to not to get too literary, but uh, one of the themes of the book is that you know crime is just business by other means, and it's all about the reflections. Like you said, Vincent Hanna is a reflection of Neil Macaulay, and vice versa. Um, one thing I didn't get to put in my review is I wanted to say that it's amazing how you got those rants in Pacino's voice, even though you didn't have Al Pacino actually saying them. I mean, did how you? did you get that? Did you? <laughs> well, I have watched Heat innumerable <laughs> times, and uh, I have the I have the the film, I have the script, I have thanks to Al Pacino's performance, I have an incredibly vivid three dimensional image uh, of of the character in my head, and I have. Uh, a collaborator who sees sees any dialogue I write and comes back with this doesn't sound like him yet. Let's <laughs> let's take another crack at it. That's the beauty of revision. So we get to uh, we get to uh, we get to uh, to try lines out and uh, make sure that they are are landing, that they are driving the story forward in the way we want, while revealing uh, uh, facets of Hannah's uh, sometimes uh, exuberant character, shall we say, <laughs> the, on the page uh, as he's uh, yelling at a uh, at an informant or uh, trying to trying to arrest somebody. So, believe me, having Al Pacino in my mind as I was writing is a is a is a fabulous opportunity. Same with Val Kilmer and Robert De Niro and all of the mm. all of the cast. Speaking of those actors, uh, a Heat Two movies movie is is in the works as we speak, right? I mean, it, are, they're not filming it yet, though. No, Michael is uh, he's currently in Italy filming Ferrari, so uh, he's this would uh, be something else. He's uh, he's he's definitely speaking about it, and uh, there would be nobody else to make a Heat Two except except him. So uh, we'll see what uh, what's coming down the pike. Well, well we, let's hope the movie happens. But even if it doesn't, we have a genuine sequel, sequel in the form of a novel. It's just so it's so unusual that that the book comes after the movie. You know that there is a movie, and then there is a book that's a genuine sequel to it. That's it's not the usual path of things, but it, it's so interesting and amazing that it happened this way. Um, and Meg, I really, thanks a lot for, uh, for taking some time out of your, your busy, uh, publicity schedule for heat Two to talk to me and Chris about it. I, I, I wanted to ask if, if Michael, uh, man is interested in doing thief Two. I love thief, his 1981 movie starring, 
during James Caan. I know that uh, James Caan dies in the in the end of that movie, but you know he could have maybe a, 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 a some sort of spiritual sequel to Thief. I, I would put myself uh, as a candidate to write Thief too. Maybe Chris also. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Tell you what? I don't think. I don't think. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how it ends. What? I'm not sure that's how it ends, but in the Neil well, Pauling version of Thief Two, that Lots of I don't worry. I, I saw it, you know, within Lots. the last. Some people die, and and I, I'm I'm wondering, like, here's what we should do. You know, three of us are novelists uh, at, at various levels of sales, but maybe we should take like a trivia quiz, like a, an expert trivia quiz, and whoever scores the highest gets to <laughs> gets to work with Michael Mann on Thief Two. No, I no can't one see it? a single flaw in that plan, Neil. <laughs> I already, I think, yeah, I think Meg's already going to kick the crap out of both of us. I'm sorry, Neil. <laughs> well, at the writing. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. I mean, that goes at the writing, for sure. That, that there's no we'll question. see who's faster on the buzzer. Yeah, right. exactly. There's always, the buzzer's the great equalizer in trivia <laughs> and, and in literature. Meg, thank you so much for stopping. Uh, let, let's go uh, get a beer sometime in Austin. And Chris... Let's get a beer sometime when we're in the same city as well. Absolutely. All right, heat two now. Oh, I wanted to add, while we were talking, I bought the book, and it will arrive at my doorstep on Friday. Applause, applause. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you both for having me on the podcast. When we last encountered director George Miller, he was making Mad Max Fury Road, one of the greatest movies of all time. It's one of the few movies that um, people will agree on along, along those lines. Uh, it was a, uh, an epic action sequel that, uh, that hit every box and uh, that everyone loved. I don't think we're going to say the same thing about his current movie. <laughs> 3,000 Years of Longing, a romantic gin fantasy starring Tilda Swinton and a gigantic Idris Elba with pointy ears, pretty Spock ears as the gin. Eric wrote the review. And he is here to, here to talk to me about it. Hello. 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 I love the title. I love this title. I wish the movie were as good as the title. I think the title is fantastic. It doesn't feel like 3,000 Years. I think they cheat it because he's like, and then I was in the bottle for 1,500 years. And you're like, come on. So it was really like five years of longing. And, and, kind and of. 2,995 years of sitting in the bottom <laughs> of, the, of the Red Sea in the bottle. But, but you know, I wouldn't be more willing to see that movie. I will say, like, at least this is not was not a 3,000 years of longing movie that was then, you know, three hours long. You know, it was an it was, right. it was hour 48. So, you know, when, when the uh, server brought our popcorn check at the Alamo draft house. I was like, Oh, thank God. It's almost over. <laughs> I like, I've never, I've never been, never been more relieved. So basically the premise of this film is that Tilda Swinton is an academic who specializes in storytelling yawn. And she goes to a conference in Istanbul and buys a old bottle at a market. It calls out to her from the bottom of a pile of marbles or whatever. And, <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and then she pops it open in her fancy hotel suite, and um, a, a gigantic, half-naked uh, Idris Elba pop, pops out. And you know that's that's a lot of people's fantasy is to have Idris Elba pop out of a bottle yeah. and offer to 
and and be enormous. Yeah, Fuck. exactly. More enormous than he already is. You know, and it's like, but she's like, oh no, oh no, shirtless Idris Elba. First, I'm going to make you tell me stories, and then he tells her stories. <laughs> well, you know, if you're a narratologist, which is what she is, apparently, I didn't even know that existed, but you know, maybe that's her her kink. Maybe you know, naked Idris Elba telling her stories. Right, right. The naked Idris Elba part she didn't like, but when he started telling her stories, now that, <laughs> that, that really that really got her Adam's apple churning. Um, so um, yeah, so basically Idris Elba is is a a, a tragic romantic genie hero um, who has had all kind you know who who, who used to uh, used to snog the Queen of Sheba, um, filling her body with chills. Uh, but now, now he's in love with a narratologist played by Tilda Swinton. Like, <laughs> oh, what? But you know, you know, after three thousand years, you do what you can, right? You settle for what you got. Yeah, yeah, you know, and you know, this is based on a short story or a novella by A.S. Byatt, the novelist, English novelist, who wrote *Possession*, another uh, romantic book about people who love to tell stories. You know, it's it's just like and bottles. Tilda, People who bottle things, bottle things up. Yeah, you know, and it's like A.S. Byatt is a very, very wealthy British storyteller, and uh, Tilda Swinton plays a, a, a surprisingly wealthy. I, don't, I didn't know narratology bought you such a nice, uh, nice townhome. Oh, you get, yeah, you get bank. You get bank as a narratologist. You didn't know that. She's living large, that you know, and, 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 and you know, but the thing is that you know, two third, three quarters of the movie. Just takes place in this in this Istanbul hotel room. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be like telling us epic romance between these these two characters, maybe you should have a story. <laughs> you know, there's no yeah, actual well. no actual story. Like the the Idris Elba stories. You know, she tells a story about you know ancient like ancient Ethiopia, and then there's there's some different eras of Istanbul. He tells stories about, and those are those are legitimate stories that he tells, but. The actual movie itself, like the plot, is condensed into the final act, you know, and and it's, yeah. and it's kind of odd the way they pace it, right? It just it because the stories don't have any heft because they're not weaved into anything. Yeah, I mean, I agree. The um, first of all, there are only three stories, so you'd think, you know, three thousand years, you'd have what? You have one interesting story every thousand years. That seems a little sad for you, Jeannie. But it, it didn't feel as rich as it does visually. I think the story itself is actually pretty anemic. And like you're saying, it doesn't really involve the two characters in any meaningful way until towards the end. Um, and that gets a little bit interesting. Um, and look, maybe George Miller, uh, to your original point, said, hey, uh, this is, this is a, a light romance. Let's keep it under two hours. I'm not going to get ambitious and sprawling and epic, even though it has hints of those things. And that's where you really see it kind of come to life a bit, but then end very quickly. And then of course, there's no connective tissue to these stories aside from, Oh, love, you know, love got me again. Or, right. oh, in you, know, new. Back in the bottle. you know, yeah. Hey, no, yeah, no like, lessons learned. It's like, yeah. It's like an episode of the love boat. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? I mean, hey, I got to appreciate the fact that he's making this movie. It's a crazy movie. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I mean, I I hesitate because, yes, there are stories about people telling stories and they go back, you know, a long way. But I haven't seen a story like this in a while and I haven't seen it done this way. 
with this kind of, uh, with these flourishes that uh, George Miller has. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Tarsem, which, you know, depending on what you think of Tarsem, you either love or hate. Um, but he was, you know, if you remember that 90s uh, big uh, music video director who made really crazy things and then he transitioned into making movies, made a couple really visually uh, arresting uh, kind of Persian-influenced movies uh, that were just, I, I think, actually kind of captivating in their own way. Yeah, there are... It's not there uneven. Are, there are some sumptuous visuals. You know, there's a couple of sort of, you know, 15th century battlefield scenes, and then there's the weird court of the Queen of Sheba, which inexplicably includes, like, large blue giraffes, and, you know, there, there, there's stuff <laughs> going on in the movie, but it, but, it, but it all just kind of falls flat because the actual story itself is, is, kind, of, is kind of weak. And yeah. the, Til the Tilda Swinton character is, um, I didn't find her very compelling or relatable. I mean, Idris Elba as the genie is, you know, I, he, he, he's definitely a thirst trap. You know, there's no question about it. I get the, <laughs> you know, he does, he, yeah. does, he does flex the pecs quite a bit. And, you know, and the ears are, are oddly compelling. I, you know, I get it, but it just, you know, the actual story itself, it's just, it just kind of, just kind of sits there. Admittedly, it is a singular product. I just feel like, um, I don't know. Yeah, it falls short. It falls short. But you know what? I, I, I also feel like it's got a good sense of humor about itself. It is fun, I, I think, you know, until it gets a bit boring once you realize it's not really going anywhere. It could have been more fun if, if it had just, I mean, I hate to say it, but it could have followed the sort of point A to point B to point C pattern of a romantic comedy or at least a romantic dramedy. And I think it would have been a lot more effective, you know, yeah, yeah. imagine if they hadn't sat in that hotel room for two hours in their plush bathrobes, uh, <laughs> you know, imagine if she'd taken him home to England, you know, earlier, earlier, and, earlier, yeah. yeah, earlier. And then he, then he weaves his story instead of telling all yeah. his stories right in a row, you know, he weaves them in throughout what is admittedly kind of a thin plot, but suddenly it would make that plot feel a lot more substantial if you actually saw their relationship developing, but then, but they don't do that. They develop it at the end after he tells all his stories. And it's just kind of a, it's just kind of a weird narrative choice. Yeah, I agree. It totally is. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to his next movie. 4,000 uh, 4, years of longing. Where, where, AKA Furiosa. Oh yeah. You know. Furiosa. That's not going to have the same problem. <laughs> I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think, I think so. I think I think, hey, his, I think his little personal uh, artistic passion project will uh, will make way for a a an absolutely uh, you know epic action prequel. But you know Miller always zigs and zags, and you know I think maybe that's his way of recharging the uh, creative juices. And if if it takes a three thousand years of longing to make Furiosa another Fury Road, you know if it makes it that high level of achievement, then you know. Please make another 3,000 years of longing, if it makes Furiosa even better. The man is an artist, and so are you, Stephen, an artist of the film review. Thank you. I'm a word painter. You are. You are. Tell me. Tell me what it was like to write movies <laughs> with you in ancient Babylon. All right, Stephen Garrett, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. It was long considered 
to be one of the most disastrous finales in TV history. And there are a lot of jokes online that Game of Thrones was so popular in its time. It was appointment television uh, at its finest. And then as soon as it was over, it entered this sort of pop culture memory hole and no one talked about it. No one wanted to talk about it anymore. It was it was the Bruno of TV shows. It was, we did want to mention the fact that we spent years obsessing over Game of Thrones. And yet, Game of Thrones is back. It is uh, There is a prequel airing on HBO Max or HBO or whatever you call it these days. It's called House of the Dragon, and it has brought back to life the, what seemed to be a dead pop culture franchise because of the ending. Uh, but here it is, House of the Dragon. And Ty Pearson, our resident Game of Thrones fanboy expert, is here with me today to talk about it. Hello, Ty. Hello. More fanboy than expert. You are a fanboy and an expert. I, I watched one of the final episodes, not the final episode of Game of Thrones at your house in Austin. So, you know, we, we have shared a lot of Game of... And we played a, a Game of Thrones trivia night uh, at a bar in Austin, I, I remember. We, we did okay. We right. did okay. We, we weren't, like, at the top of the rankings. True. It had been a while since I'd read the books. Yeah, it, yeah, there was a lot of books and there was a lot of lore. And now... Now the lore is filling out with House of the Dragon, which tells the story of the Targaryen dynasty. It takes place exactly 172 years uh, before the start of the narrative arc of Game of Thrones. So, I don't know. I mean, I watched House of the Dragon. I watched, I've only seen the pilot. I like Some critics have seen the whole season. I, I didn't have access to it. And I, you know, I thought it was it was a solid piece of work. I mean, it, it set the story up extremely well. Yeah, I mean, they they definitely like stylistically, um, you know, just the the pacing and things of that nature that I think drew people to uh, to the to the first show. I think they, they 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 were smart to go back at that. Just it really looks like it's taking its time, at least initially, which is I which I I think was a big. Um, a big reason that a, a lot of people liked Game of Thrones. Just, you know, you're not used to seeing that in fantasy type uh, work. You know, usually you, you, it's mostly in movies. So you get, you know, you instantly get into the big battles and things like that. And, you know, we had we had years to wait for those in the first show. So Yeah, there's storytelling. Well, also the first show, like, it's, it, yeah, it took its time, like, weaving the characters and the relationships. I mean, it's not like House of the Dragon didn't have some um, some stuff in the first episode. I mean, yeah. there was a horrific scene where a baby is ripped untimely from the womb of his mother, and there's a lot of blood in there, and there's like a scene where a guy gets his penis chopped off because he's a rapist. You know, there's some... Because it's Game of Thrones, there's, there's prostitutes getting reamed. You know, it's yeah. like... It doesn't exactly, it's not like it doesn't provide all of that. You know, I just felt, it just felt very consistent with, with the universe. I mean, the tone of the show, the style of the writing, and even the sets. I mean, it's like they brought back King's Landing, which was the capital city of Westeros, the continent that Game of Thrones takes place on. And it was like, it was just the same, same rooms, <laughs> you know? It was cool to see. I mean, you know, and they had some... They had some good Easter eggs in there, you know, whenever uh, the king's patting his dagger, talking to her about that. I mean, that's the same dagger that was there right from the first part of uh, Game of Thrones. 
I don't know if you caught that. That's the same dagger yep. that they gave uh, that they were trying to implicate Tyrion with. So yeah, it's, it's the dagger that that Arya used to kill the Night King. Yeah, so I mean, it so, was uh, all there. Yeah. A lot of a lot of Easter eggs. They even they even mentioned a song of ice and fire. I was like, oh, okay. So this is so this is a prequel, and but and it really it, it really like incorporates the the universe. And well, I mean. This is one of the things that I think the show does well is they really consulted George R. R. Martin, the cr- creator of the Game of Thrones mythology, heavily on this. Whereas toward the end of Game of Thrones, Benioff and Weiss, who were the showrunners, really went uh, away from what he, I think George R. R. Martin wanted. Yeah, I mean, I guess time will tell, right? If we ever see the books, I mean, and you know, we even have no way of knowing unless he says something if he's ended up in a, you know, change stuff based on the show. Or if they just really weren't following some of his notes, you know. I guess well, theoretically, we might find find out one day, but who knows at this point? Yeah, but I just I just think it's it's kind of incredible. Like I mean, that that the show even that this show even exists and that that it's as good as it is. I mean, we'd all we'd all considered Game of Thrones to be dead, right? I, I yeah, I, I'm very surprised that it that it made it back. I mean, you know, I mean, they some of the best some of the directors who were. I think the most acclaimed and directed some of, you know, the favorite episodes are back and have a big hand in it. So I think that that, that was, you know, I think, I think that gave some of us that were were big fans of the show, some, uh, some confidence that it would, you know, that it, that it had a chance at least. All right. So let's talk about some of the uh, performances here. Uh, So we had, the story is basically like a, it's a story about these two teenage girls uh, Rhaenyra, is that right? Targaryen, who is like basically the heir to the throne, and her friend, uh, who is not a Targaryen, who is the daughter of the Hand of the King, uh, but appears to be headed towards a, a snog with the king, um, and and their their destinies are, are appear destined to collide uh, for the fate of the continent, and 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 you know the two young women who uh, who play them, I thought were were quite good. And there's going to be a cast change um, later in the season. They're going to be there's going to be different actors playing them as adults. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I was wondering about that when it was showing some of the uh, you know the clips at the end. It looked like there was some you know forward sequences, and I was yeah. I, mean, I think it goes ahead about ten years. So you've got Millie yeah. Alcock is a is a sort of a newcomer who plays Renera. Uh, I keep calling her Rihanna in my mind. Yes. Um, uh, I thought you know she. She definitely looked looked like a Targaryen, and um, you know, and, and I thought she was kind of ch- good and chilly. Um, and I also liked Olivia Cook, who played her friend. Uh, but I, I I thought that the the best performances were well well Matt Smith, you know, our former Doctor Who, and also Prince Philip from The Crown uh, plays the I don't know if he's the bad guy, but he's certainly the antihero of the show, Damon Targaryen, the brother of the king, and he was he just ate it up. Oh man, he was so much fun, dude. And like a, a lot, one of his like facial things that he would do, where he'd have this like uh, he'd sort of cock his head down a little bit and look up with his big eyes and have that smirk. It totally reminded me of Ramsey Bolton, like so similar. But you know that's just because it was the same show. But I mean that just same sort of instant menace that's just always there. But he kind of fulfills the role. I feel like um, that uh, Peter Dinklage did. In, at least in the early seasons of Game of Thrones, like he's a fairly recognizable uh, character actor, you know, or not even a character. Matt Smith's not a character actor. He's like a, you know, he's a marquee TV star. 
um, and, and like you know, serves. He's not comic relief, but he he brings like a a lot of a lot of energy to every scene he's in. And I could see him providing. And and he also is like the sort of drinking and whoring type. I mean, you know, Tyrion was definitely like always a good guy in every scene he was in. That's not the case here, but I feel like he performs that same function. I also liked um, the guy who played the king, uh, King Viserys. Uh, he's a British character actor named Paddy Considine, uh, Considine, and I thought he was really good. He had a very difficult, uh, <laughs> very difficult feats. He was, he was great, and I thought it was interesting right off the bat that, you know, they chose, I guess, this time period, and that the king seems, you know, like a competent, sane human, Whereas, you know, when you hear about the lore about the Targaryens is that at least at some point in their life, they all go crazy, you know. So it was, uh, I think it was, you know, I, I was wondering, you know, who essentially would be in, in power at the beginning and where they would be along that uh, descent into madness that seems to consume all the Targaryens. Is, at least that's what we, you know, you would hear about from, uh, from you know, the Game of Thrones. Well, and he's, he's normal and he, he actually inherits the throne from his brother, who apparently ruled over uh, Westeros uh, peacefully for decades? Right. Um, this, this wise old king, um, and and this and this, and they make uh, comments about him being weak and about him letting things kind of get out of control. And yeah, maybe he makes a questionable decision here or there, but it's not like he's not in control, you know. And he's not like he's like a you know drunken gadabout or you know, and, and uh, he's he's clearly not. A, a lunatic, you right. know? So, yeah. So that was an interesting choice. And then he, you know, he makes a tough call at the end of the pilot to uh, turn succession over to his daughter, as opposed to his brother. Um, because, because she seems like the, uh, I guess the saner choice at the time. Yeah. And you, know, you wonder if he's going to come to lament that. Cause he obviously made the choice during like a super emotional moment, you know, and it, it, it didn't sound like his brother had, you know, called for, you know, taking over or anything. He just kind of made a bad joke, which not, not, not a good thing to do, but probably shouldn't have been like the, the main uh, point in using to, uh, you know, pick and pick an air. So, well, the, bro the brother's a bit of a wild card, but so is the daughter. She's a teenager who has never um, had to make a decision. Right. Uh, and he knows well. how shelter he's, you know, attempted to keep her. So yeah, it's uh yeah, it's good. I mean, it, it, it definitely sets it up. To, I, I guess I'm interested on when this uh, time jump's going to happen and if they're going to keep, you know, both uh, both sets of actors going forward, you know, and kind of going for your favorite, you know, dual dual timelines. Oh, I hope I if there's a dual timeline, I'm bowing out. I don't care. <laughs> I'll go. I'll, I'll I'll go watch. Um, I'll go watch Indian matchmaking or something instead. Nice. Uh, but the the finally we have to mention this. There's a lot of dragons in the show. I mean, there were some dragons in Game of Thrones, but they kind of came along later, and they were mostly babies for most of the show, whereas this show starts with a dozen-plus dragons already. We haven't seen a dozen dragons yet. We've only seen a couple, but the dragons are out there. It is. I, you know, you kind of wonder, like, uh, like, what constitutes ownership of a dragon? You know, I mean, I guess, you know, from some of the reading I did, you know, there was, uh, you know, there were some short stories um, on, you know, the anthologies that, you know, Martin came out with that were related, you know, to, to earlier time periods. And it definitely seemed that like each Targaryen sort of had their dragon 
that they bonded with. So I'm assuming it was okay that he hopped on his dragon and took off, but you know, we don't even know that yet. That well, you have to, like I think you have to, you have to sit on the egg and hatch it. Like Horton, right. like Horton hears a who. That, that, that would be good. We need one of those. We need one of those. Yeah, that's what it, I mean, I, you know, obviously in Game of Thrones, there's a very dramatic scene where Daenerys Targaryen emerges from the fire with the eggs. But I think maybe just like a, just like a, you build a nest, you put the egg in, you sit on it, you know, people bring you food. Uh, that's what, that's what I would do. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> that's, hey, so, that's uh, how, that, that, that's, a, but this is why I'm not in charge. Right. <laughs> at the end of the day. All right. Well, House of the Dragon is here. It's on HBO. And uh, hey, Ty, so I, have, I have one more for you. You know, I'm the what? guy who loves to speculate on everything. Yeah. Who do you think poisoned the Iron Throne? Because that was a super obvious setup. Poisoned the Iron. What do you mean? So there's the scene where the king early on has the festering wound on his back that they're oh, trying yeah. to figure out how to treat. And then they call it back even later in the show when he pricks his finger. Hmm. Like, I don't and, then, know. and then there is a scene in the show that shows Damon sitting on the throne. So, uh, you know, they're setting, I think that's a, I think they're setting him up that he would have been the one to do it. Or, I mean, I guess they could just say that's the pointy seat of power and it causes you problems. But I was wondering if they were trying to set that up somehow. I have no idea. I wasn't even thinking about it, honestly. Ah, gotcha. We'll figure it out. You know, yeah, and here's yeah. the thing, Ty. Here's the thing, Ty. You and I, we're not nerds. We're not nerds at all talking about this. <laughs> right? Not at all. Thanks for stopping, Ty. Woo. Thanks for having me, Neil. All right. Thanks, Ty Pearson. House of the Dragon, now airing on HBO-related products. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for joining me to talk about 3,000 Years of Longing, and Chris Farnsworth, and especially Meg Gardner, for talking to me about Heat 2, the sequel to Heat that is now in novel form and available wherever books are sold. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I am the heir to the Iron Editor's Throne. Thank you for joining us on the show this week. We will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com. Audio Hopper. <laughs>